Get ready for the smartest bundle in streaming. Six streaming services for the intellectually curious. Featuring Curiosity Stream with the best collection of documentary films and TV shows. Psalm TV and great stories from the world of wine. Taste Made for the fun side of food and travel. Topic with the best thrillers and crime stories. And so much more. From nature to history, technology to food, mystery to adventure. Get six streaming services for one low price. And less than $6 a month, it's the best deal in streaming. Learn more and sign up now at smartbundle.com. Buchanan Lepus checked his pocket watch. He shook it. He seemed to be running late again. How did he always do that? It was a puzzle he could try to figure out later. He had things to do at the moment. Lepus put the pocket watch away as he descended the steps to the dungeon under the keep. He wasn't supposed to be there, and he was wary of guards finding him wandering around. He paused at the bottom of the staircase. He didn't see any guards. His timing had worked well enough to let him slip by the security that should have been in place. He straightened his blue velvet suit coat as he walked down the corridor between cells. At least they had set torches ablaze to give him light, but he didn't really need it. His eyesight was better than most, and his night vision was better than that. He nodded when he found the cell he wanted. He tried the handle. It resisted his hand. He pulled a bottle from his vest pocket and pulled the stopper on it. He poured the liquid on the handle. He stopped the bottle and returned it to his pocket. He pushed the door open and stepped inside the cell. Part of the lock and handle mechanism fell to the floor with a tinkling as he passed. He shook his head as he regarded the prisoner. He had arrived too late. Allison, Lepus said. He approached the prisoner. Her face was covered in bruises. Parts of her red hair had been torn from her scalp. Blood leaked from her nose and mouth. He noted burn marks to go with the bruises. They had worked her over while she was helpless. He clenched his buck teeth. There was nothing he could do about that. They had secured her arms in a straitjacket, then wrapped chains around her to keep her arms pinned down, then hung her on a hook. Manacles secured her feet to the floor. Lepus took a pill from his vest pocket. He wished he had water to help wash it down. He should have thought about that. He inserted the pill between her lips and tilted her head back so she would swallow. He should have thought to bring water, but hadn't. He stepped back and waited. The pill would take time to do its job. Once it worked, he could think about trying to get Allison out of the dungeon and somewhere safe. Maybe he could get her to Tom if he was careful. Bucky, murmured Allison. Twins. Listen, Allison, said Lepus. We don't have a lot of time before the guards check on you. Heart is gone. The red flag ruled the glass. Everyone is scattered. The only one fighting is Tom. He still controls his woods. Do you understand? What did you give me? Allison asked. It burns. It's concentrated time, said Lepus. Tea Time said you would need it to help in your escape. He didn't say what it would do. The bruises and cuts rolled back as Lepus watched. He squinted as more of the wounds and damage reversed themselves. Allison's hair became redder and brighter in streaks. I'm having some pain here, Bucky, said Allison. It's like fire in my veins. Can you get me down? Lepus circled the manacled woman. He thought that he could lift her off the hook if he could unlock the harness holding her in place. He bent down and inspected the manacles on her ankles. He still had some of the acid he used on the door. Did he want to chance it so close to her feet and legs? He could accidentally cut her feet off with the wrong amount. 
He heard approaching sounds coming from the corridor. He checked his watch. He had run over again. The guards were coming back to check the corridor. As soon as they saw what had been done to the door, things would be in the pan then. He could still free Allison's arms. He didn't know what good that would do. It was better than nothing, and he couldn't help her escape while he was running for his own life. The guards are coming back, said Lepis. I'm going to try to cut the chain around your upper body, but I won't be able to do more before they see me here. I can lead them off, but they will probably move you to somewhere else to keep me from trying to help you again. Do what you can, said Allison. She nodded as she seemed to be more in control. I need a knife before you leave. You said twins, said Lepis. He pulled out the vial of acid. He pulled the cork. How could he use this effectively before the guards noticed what he was doing? These twins that work for the red flag, said Allison. One blocks while the other attacks. They took me out while I was trying to figure out how to get around them. And then they took heart, said Lepis. Game over. He applied drops of acid to the harness, to the chain around Allison, and to the bolts in the floor holding her feet to a certain radius. He touched the last bit to the lock holding the straight jacket in place. He pulled out his pocket knife and opened the blade. He cut into the straight jacket about where he thought one of her hands would be. He placed the knife in Allison's palm and stepped back. Thanks, Bucky, said Allison. I think you should go. This formula that Tea Time gave you is juicing me up. I could feel it. You're not going to want to be around if I lose control. The garden is gone, and so is the cards. But we think Hart might still be alive, said Lepis. He looked at the empty bottle and dropped it. But if he used up the cards, he doesn't have anything to turn the tide. It will be us, and you know we're not fighters, Allison. I'll look for him, said Allison. You should go while you can. Right, said Lepis. Remember, Tom is still roaming his woods if you need a safe place for a while. Lepis turned to leave the cell. The door swung open. Two boojums stared at him with their yellow eyes. Shadow drifted over their skins as they moved to block his leaving. He sighed. Why was he always late? Look what we have here, said one of the boojums. He could have been the fear of an abusive husband. He looks like a rabbit. I think we can eat it, said the other boojum. He flexed the six fingers on each of his hands. Talons appeared. Lepis looked over his shoulder. Small streams of flagrant smoke drifted in the air. He had to buy a little more time. He straightened his jacket with a tug of his hands. I have one question, gentlemen, said Lepis. Did you consider what would happen if your prisoner ever broke free? What? said the plumper boojum. She's never going to break free. We're going to be hurting her for a long time, long after your bones are thrown in the trash heap. You're already dead, said Lepis. He pointed a finger at the boojum. He hoped he looked dramatic enough. The boojum started laughing, cackling like crows. They could appreciate a joke from their prey before they got down to business. Gold light sliced the boojum indicated by Lepis in half. His partner stopped laughing and looked at the two sections burning the air as they fell to the floor. He looked at the prisoner. Allison smiled at him. He turned to run, but the door slammed shut in his face. The rabbit had already leapt out of the room, pulling the barrier closed behind him as he ran. 
I wish I could cut you as many times as you have hurt me, said Allison. I don't have time for that. The Boojum decided that it would claw out a victory if it moved fast enough. It leapt forward, arms extended. A gold blade met its charge edge on. It fell on either side of the prisoner. Lepus worked his way out of the dungeon. He avoided Boojums heading down to the cell block with well-timed evasions behind columns of buttresses. He wondered how many of the garrison Allison would kill before she cut her way out of the keep and made her way either to Baseline or to Tom's Woods. He checked his watch as he fled into the night. The moons assembled above him slowly, but he didn't care about that. He had to find his own place to weather the expected search that would happen now that Allison was doing what she was supposed to do. As the last chunk of rock finished the first moon, he found a pool of water. He smiled at the white-haired apparition that shook its head at him in the surface. He touched his reflection with a finger and slid across reality. The woman at the door said her husband was inside my home. She was agitated and ran her fingers through her unwashed hair. You have the wrong address. It's just me, I said, then lied. And my boyfriend is here. No, no, please. Just listen to me, she said, placing a hand on the doorframe and leaning in toward me. I said I couldn't help her, said again she had the wrong address, then shut the door. But I could still hear her. I don't know what he'll do. Let me in. Let me find him, she said, her muffled voice sharpening while her palm drummed on the door. He stands still. I froze in the entryway and waited five minutes after it sounded like she had left, in case her ear was pressed to the door. I didn't give much thought to her husband, at first. There was something off about her, how she tried to talk so calmly, even though it was obvious she was coiled tight enough to snap. She kept floating on her toes, looking into my apartment behind me, but she also didn't seem outcast or even neglected really. Her cashmere sweater and tapered pants told a different story. So I searched my apartment with the crowbar I kept under my sheets in the linen closet. No one was in the front rooms, with their windows facing the street. I had been there all day, so it was impossible for anyone to have broken in that way. And then I remembered the old dumbwaiter shaft. It was behind the kitchen door, shut behind a hinged metal slab to keep noise from bleeding between apartments. It was no longer an open shaft, but a dusty compartment used as a pass-through for cables. I brought along my biggest chef knife from the drawer across from the refrigerator. The steel panel was painted the same color as the wall and had no handle or latch. Instead, there was a small jagged hole punched in one side with several drill bit plunges. I dug a screwdriver out of the junk drawer and tried to pry it open with a single jerk, so I could step back and hold out the blade in my other hand. Instead, it swung open with a painfully slow creak, and I dropped the knife, scaring myself even more when it clattered at my feet. Without thinking, I bent down to pick it up. Kneeling on the floor, I imagined a pale hand reaching out into my hair and my skull. But when I stood up and looked inside, there was nothing there, just the dark. It was empty. When I left the kitchen and crossed by the front door again, I saw that the woman had shoved a piece of paper in my door like a takeout menu. It was a torn envelope 
like something pulled crumpled from the trash and had written on it the words, Listen, please. And then I heard her whisper from low down on the door, even below where I had kneeled to pull out the scrap of paper. The first time my husband was around the corner from our French doors, in the hollow where my desk meets the printer cabinet, he must have been there all morning. He was standing straight up like a sunflower, but I didn't see him until I got up from the desk and bumped my ankle. When I looked up, suddenly he was there, staring at nothing. The second time he was behind an all-glass display case in our entryway, pinched between a pane and the wall just inside the front door. The whispering stopped and I realized I was barely breathing. I was still kneeling and my knees were beginning to get sore. Are you still there? The whispered voice asked. I didn't answer. He's gotten really skinny and goes through tubes of high SPF sunscreen whenever he's called out to a site. So now he's white as an electric socket. He can suppress his presence and take away your intuitive sense that another person is nearby. He's practicing. He's getting better. He knows where your eyes land and the spaces they slide over. Go away, I screamed, before retreating to the farthest corner of my apartment, away from the front door. It took me a while to calm down with some TV and all the lights on. I didn't pay attention to the show, but told myself that the woman at the door had a mental illness and a persecution complex, and she wanted to pull me into her delusion. I crept to the window and peered into the park across the street from my house. It was small and mostly mown, with a picnic pavilion and a swing set. But right across from me was a shock of forest, rising up, curling and unwanted. The sun was still up, but low enough for this thicket to be dark in its own shadows. I looked for her there, expecting I don't know what. Two red eyes? I didn't see her, and opened the blinds fully. A few families were playing volleyball down at the farthest end of the park, but it was otherwise empty. Then I caught the blue light of an e-cigarette. It was her, seated in a shadowed beach chair, with her legs stacked casually in front of her. I could barely see her face, but it looked as if she was staring into my windows. I debated whether to go out to confront her, but when I turned around I saw her husband. I didn't scream. My throat snapped shut on my breath. Through the kitchen doorway across the room I could see my dishwasher and him standing next to it, one leg against the fridge. He wasn't standing straight, but bent forward at a right angle. His back aligned with the marble countertop. One arm was held pinned against his thigh, the other down, then the wrist up, with fingers out in odd angles. His face pointed forward, aligned atop his body like a bullet on a shell casing, with his eyes aimed at one side of me and far away. He wore an expression of rapture on a pale face. His lips were glittering red. He didn't move or react and showed no signs of being detected. But I still expected those eyes to swivel and land on me. Didn't feel I could move or look away until it did. I forced myself to clap, then to wave my arms. But there was no reaction. You, I said. Sir, I added. You need to leave. He didn't react. And it wasn't just as if he was ignoring me. There wasn't a tremor or breath. He stayed so still. It was as if the whole world had frozen. I called 911, of course. The operator urged me to get out of the house as quickly as possible. 
I stayed on the line with the operator, but there was nothing left to say. My only way out was past him. Acid filled my stomach. There was no way I could cross that room. I considered tossing something at him, or attacking him, but there was nothing more dangerous than a TV remote nearby. The operator said something about officers on the way, and my phone slipped from my hand in my rush to bring it back to my ear. My eyes never dropped from the husband, who didn't flinch when my phone crunched on impact, then clattered across the floor and under the couch. I lowered myself to my hands and knees and considered crawling over and reaching under, until I realized it would put him out of sight. It was better to escape. Maybe I could crawl by him without touching him and he'll stay frozen. Or would he just grab me when I got close? I didn't have a choice. At the threshold between hardwood and tile, I looked down at my hands on the floor, and when I looked up, he was gone. But it was only for an instant, because suddenly I could see him again just in front of me. He hadn't moved. My eyes hadn't let him go and struggled to find him again, like he wasn't where I had expected, or if I had somehow forgotten him. The arms holding me up shook so violently that I pitched forward, landing on the side of my face with a smack. I landed right at his feet, but didn't touch him. Pushing back on the heels of my hands, I rolled backwards and slammed into the cabot behind me, hard enough that I heard the fiberboard crack inside the door. I could crawl by him now, but first watched him for any sign of movement. He was wearing a khaki t-shirt that didn't quite match the wood cabinetry, or stand out from the white refrigerator at his back, nor were his dark pants much of a match for the brushed chrome of the dishwasher, though I could see he had a sliver of something shimmery and silver, like a lanyard loop hanging out from his pocket. I don't know how he could have disappeared from my sight, but he didn't seem to notice me. I strained to keep an eye on him over my shoulders as I crawled past, until I couldn't move slowly any longer. I scrambled to my feet, tumbling into a standing position, then into a headlong run, where I couldn't tell my heartbeats from the pounding of feet on the floor. After struggling with the lock, I finally squeezed through my front door and shut it behind me without looking back. The police came and searched my apartment, found no one. I tried to explain that he might still be there, that they just hadn't seen him, but they wouldn't come back in with me, they wouldn't search the park either. They were annoyed I wouldn't go back inside, but eventually left. I didn't have my phone and didn't know where to go, so I wandered out of my building in the days. It was dark out now, but the night air felt good. I saw a car double parked, but didn't pay it any attention until the woman pushed open the passenger door from the driver's seat and waved me over. I'd be embarrassed to describe the horrible things I said to her, but she was calm and composed. She knew how to handle her husband standing still and was nothing like the woman who first confronted me on my doorstep. I don't want to give her real name, so I'll call her Flora. I'll teach you to see him, was the first thing Flora told me, once I was able to listen. I didn't want to see him, or to go anywhere with this person, but I didn't know what else to do. She drove me far outside of the city, until I could see stars over a sprawling suburbia. Somewhere near the highway, where duplex condos faded into industrial parks, she turned into a multi-acre construction site. It was all blonde dirt, scraped and marked by bulldozer treads. At the center was a cinder block frame that might one day grow into a big box store. 
She turned off her headlights and suddenly the feeling I had ignored in favor of her serene understanding of my situation could no longer be ignored. I was struck dumb with fear, my sore muscles protesting at being called back to alert. Had I met a couple working together? But she kept talking, reasonably, kept her instructions simple, and I found no moment to protest. Instead, I followed her, even let her take me by the hand and pull me, in a circuitous path, out into the center of the standing blocks. She laid out a picnic blanket and urged me to lay on my back next to her with a friendly pat. Inside, I was screaming. We're in the middle of one of the dimmer meteor showers that doesn't get headlines, she said, but we can see one every few minutes if we know how to look. Men who stand still, she told me, can't be searched out like a bird among branches or a face in the crowd. That is a search for specificity, even if you could live in a state of constant scrutiny where every pixel of reality is examined, you would not often find these unmoving men. They slip into your scotoma and escape your attention because they are no longer objects to be found. There was one, she said, pointing to a part of the sky. Did you see that one? I hadn't. Because you are darting around looking for shooting stars, she said, instead of looking at the surface of reality. Her husband had receded into the sky of our day-to-day -day existence, she said. When standing still, he wasn't an object to be found in space, but had shut down every part of himself to become permanent. She taught me to make my eyes flat and to search without an idea of what I wanted to see. To see them, you can no longer want anything from the sky, she said. You have to deaden yourself to know what surrounds you. I laughed when I saw the first shooting star and forgot about my terrible day. Then there was another, and another. Now please, please don't be afraid, she said, sitting up and placing her hand on my goose-pimpled forearm. I looked around with my meteor eyes. There were men standing in strange shapes, pressed against the cinder blocks and standing in the mud at bent angles, and even across the street, holding themselves straight. I see them everywhere now, she whispered. There are so many of them standing still. This is a story that my mom told me. She heard this from a friend who claims that this happened to her. Being a 911 operator is not exactly the easiest job out there. The hours are long, the pay is mediocre, and you get to experience a lot of grim stuff. People calling in with their relatives dying in front of them, car crashes and domestic abuse is a regular thing. In spite of all of this, I enjoyed working as one. I got to talk to a lot of people and then we formed a tight bond at my workplace. So I stayed on for almost 20 years, from my early 20s to my early 40s, before switching careers. I have received countless calls over the years, but there is one that sticks to me to this day. It gives me chills just talking about. So here's my story. I had just started my shift that would go from 6 p.m. to 6 a.m. The office was pretty deserted at that point with only a couple of other operators. I logged in and started doing my thing. The first hour was pretty standard, nothing major happening. But then at around 7 p.m., a call comes in. I answer the phone. 911, what's the emergency? No answer. I wait a couple of seconds before I speak up. Hello? You've reached 911. How may I assist you? Ha, yes. 
Hi. A voice appeared on the other line. It was a man, but he spoke very softly, almost whispering. Could you send someone out here, please? Sir, could you please speak a bit louder? Yes, of course, sorry. I need some assistance out here. I got his address. He had raised his voice, but it was still pretty quiet. He was calm, but I could tell that his breathing was uneven. I realized that he was probably whispering, as did not want to be heard by someone or something. What do you need assistance with? I need to know this, so I can send the proper help. Uh, well, there is a man in my living room. A man? What is he doing? Nothing. He's, he's just standing there, completely still. Has he said anything? No, not a word. I didn't even see him through the window when I came home. What does he look like? He's tall, slim build, almost too slim. He has a gray suit on with black shoes, light skin. What does his face look like? I don't know. His back is turned against me. Could you please send some help? I now realize just how scared this man was. He was trying to stay calm, but I could tell that he was trembling with fear. Assistance is on the way. It will take about 20 minutes. Stay on the phone with me and I'll help you, okay? Okay. When did you first notice him? About 10 minutes ago, maybe. I came home from work, but did not see anything through the windows, as I said. Then when I walked into the living room, he was there. He did not react or anything. So where are you now? I'm in my hallway, in a chair. If I lean forward slightly, I can see into the living room and see him. I could feel a chill creeping up my spine. This was very odd. If it had been a burglar, he would have done something by now. Alright, I'm going to need you to do something. Could you please walk into the living room and try to take a look at his face? Or see if you get any response? Oh, uh, okay. Wait a minute. He put the phone down. This took place in the late 80s, so cell phones weren't a thing. Every house had a landline. I could hear some movement, and then I heard his voice again. I tried to, but I could not see his face. It's hard to explain. Please hurry up. I heard the sound of a door opening. Hang on, my wife just got home. I got to explain the situation to her. I heard hushed voices talking, and I could hear that his wife started crying. Even I was scared now. This whole situation felt strange. After a while, he got back on the phone. Okay, we're both in the hallway now. She has also seen him. She knows the situation. Where are the police? They're on the way, I, I promise. Can I please talk to your wife? I heard some rustling and then a female voice. She also spoke in a quiet voice while trying to suppress her crying. Hello? Hi. I was wondering, could you please describe the man in your living room? Yes. He's very tall and slim. Gray suit and black shoes. He's wearing shoes and getting them on our new carpet. Now when people are in a state of panic or shock, they will often say stuff that appears to be very mundane and disconnected from the situation. It is a coping mechanism. She continued. I was at the gym, so I got home later than usual. When I parked in our driveway, I noticed that the desk lamp in the living room was alight. I thought it was weird because that's my desk where I draw, and it's only lit when I am drawing. But I did not see someone in the living room. Okay, and the man in your living room, he's not said anything? No, not a sound or a movement. All he's done is getting stains on my new carpet. Oh, please send someone fast. She started crying again. 
I could see on my monitor that the police were only a couple of minutes away. The husband picked up the phone. Yes, it's me again. Are the police close? Yes, only a couple of minutes now. I'm going to need one of you to go outside and meet the police so they can assist you. No, we're too afraid. I can't leave my wife alone. As I said earlier, this call was through a landline so they could not go outside and stay on the call. I think we'll manage for a couple of minutes before the... Wait, what? Suddenly he became silent. I tried to get his attention but neither he or his wife made any noise. I heard some rustling followed by footsteps. Heavy footsteps. The kind only big boots can make when walking indoors. And then I heard the most chilling roar I have ever heard. It sounded inhuman, very deep and incredibly strong. I jolted in my chair, every hair on my body was standing straight up. Then, complete silence. Hello? Are you there? Hello? Click. The person on the other end hung up the phone. I tried calling back, but no answer. But then I saw something that still confuses me. My monitor made no indication that any patrols had been sent out to that address. I tried for an hour calling both the house and the number I got to the patrol car I had dispatched, but nothing. I had to continue working and taking calls, but that incident was on my mind the entire night. When I got off, I immediately drove to a friend of mine who works at the local police station. I asked him about this, but he had no memory of any police cars being dispatched to that address that night. I was completely dumbfounded. Had I been dreaming? Was I hallucinating? I was sure that I had talked with that couple, and I also remembered that inhuman roar. I drove home and tried to get some sleep, which I managed to do after a number of glasses of wine. A few days later, I had a day off. I decided to get to the bottom of this and soothe my mind. The address was written down in my notebook and I drove to the address. By coincidence, I arrived at around the same time that call had been made, a few minutes, give or take. Full of expensive houses with new cars in the driveways and perfectly trimmed lawns. The house on the address did not stand out. It had a light yellow color with a garden filled with different kinds of flowers. Nothing seemed to be too out of the ordinary. It was quiet and the air was warm. But then I noticed something. In the window there was a light. There was a desk light shining brightly. As I was staring at this, unsure of my next move, a car pulled into the driveway. It was a new BMW that parked. Out of the car came a woman looking the part of an expensive car owner. I could smell the perfume from the curb I was standing on. The weird thing was that she did not seem to notice me at all. I was after all standing right in front of her house, looking straight at it. Most people would at least react to a stranger standing in front of your house. She started walking towards the house but stopped after a few steps. I could see the confusion in her eyes and then she spoke. Huh. That's weird. Why is my desk light on? I recognized the voice straight away. It was the wife. I froze in place, unsure of what to do. The hairs on my arms stood straight up. The woman walked to the front door, opened it and went inside. I stood in front of the house for maybe ten minutes, staring intensely at the window with the desk light. Nothing. At last I jumped in my car and drove away. I could not shake this feeling of complete fear. I never heard anything about that house or anything similar to it. I later moved away from that town and have never returned. 
It just makes me feel weird being there. It's been over 30 years, but I still remember it clear as day. The trembling voice of the husband, that wife crying, and that inhuman roar. Get ready for the smartest bundle in streaming. Six streaming services for the intellectually curious. Featuring Curiosity Stream with the best collection of documentary films and TV shows. Psalm TV and great stories from the world of wine. Taste Made for the fun side of food and travel. Topic with the best thrillers and crime stories. And so much more. From nature to history, technology to food, mystery to adventure. Get six streaming services for one low price. And less than $6 a month, it's the best deal in streaming. Learn more and sign up now at smartbundle.com.